parable, a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Paradigm shift, a fundamental change in approach or underlying assumptions. In other words, a new reality. The parables of Jesus were not just simple stories or teaching illustrations to make a moral or spiritual point. They were meant to disrupt and to provoke the imagination, to invite people to see what God is doing in the world from a new perspective. His parables upend our notions about life and challenge us to view his kingdom accurately, to not just simply think differently, but to live out a new reality. They are expressions of Jesus' shocking announcement that God's kingdom was arriving on earth as in heaven. Hey everyone, welcome to the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. It is good to be together with you guys today. My name's Colin, and I lead United, our young adult ministry here at Grace. And I'm just really excited to be joining you all for the third week in a series that we've been calling Paradigm Shift, where we've been looking at Jesus' parables. And so as I've been thinking about this idea of a paradigm shift, I've actually been thinking about how there's just certain life events that kind of necessitate that we shift our paradigm and our approach to life. And so in my own life, uh, the, the event that came to mind uh, was my wedding day and my marriage to uh, Emily, my wife. Uh, and so for the single fellows in the room, there's a big difference between living with some roommates and living with a wife, right? And so I've had to radically shift my paradigm uh, since previously living with some college roommates to now living with Emily. As for example, my cleanliness, cleanliness standard, it's changed quite a bit. I used to think that, you know, maybe a deep clean of the apartment once a quarter, once a semester, that, that, that worked. Uh, not for Emily, right? It needs to be something more like weekly or something like that. Uh, also, decorating. Decorating looks very different when you live with uh, a wife. And so in, in college, we had a fireplace. It was like a brick fireplace. Some of the bricks got loose, so we just kind of built a pile of them uh, on our windowsill and just sat there for like three years, right? But, but <laughs> at our house now, Emily's put so many pillows on our living room couch, I'm not sure if it's for pillows or for people anymore, right? It's just, it's just it's, I, think, I think functionally, she thinks like what looks pretty, right? It's, a, it's just a different way of thinking. Uh, but not, and on a more serious uh, shift, I've had to completely shift the way I make decisions now, right? Because instead of thinking, hey, hey what, what do I want? And I think, well, what do we want? Or, or as a uh, good husband, I think, what does Emily want, right? And, and so I've had to radically kind of shift uh, my approach, and it's really confronted a lot of the selfishness in my own heart. Uh, but my understanding is all that is nothing compared to the next paradigm shift that Emily and I are thinking about, which is what does it look like to bring a child into this world, right? And so, so whatever it is, whether, whether it's getting married or, or having kids, there's these certain events in life that kind of entirely change our approach to life. And I think actually in a similar way, Jesus' parables, they're, they're meant to do the same thing, right? That a lot of times when we think about Jesus' parables, we think about these cute little stories that have kind of a nice, simple, easy to understand point. Uh, but I think actually what we've been saying in this series is that Jesus' parables are meant to mess with our paradigms, right? They're meant to mess with us. They're actually designed to kind of disrupt our, our framework and our approach to life. And they're designed to challenge us to think differently about ourselves, about the world, and about who God is. And so for those of us who have been following Jesus for some time, I think these parables are really, really helpful because I think it's easy over the course of our time of knowing and following Jesus to kind of settle in sometimes or drift from a proper paradigm of understanding who God is. 
It's easy to get settled into in our mind about what it looks like for us to follow Jesus. But I think if we come to these parables with open hearts and open ears, they have the potential to reawaken us in a really awesome way to who God is and what it would look like to actually follow him. And then for those of you who are here who are investigating Jesus, uh, first off, that's awesome. We are so glad that you're here. And I think these parables will actually be really helpful to you too. Uh, because the truth is, all of us come to God with, with some preconceived idea of who he is, some assumptions about who he is. And maybe for you, in your current understanding of Jesus and what it means to be a Christian or, or follow him, you're a little bit uneasy with that, right? You're, you're still sorting some things out. Well, I think these parables are gonna help you see that maybe you're uneasy, maybe you're rejecting an improper view of who Jesus is in the first place, right? And so I think these parables will be helpful for all of us. Uh, and so if you were here last week, uh, Pastor Kevin actually walked us through one of the parables and he talked about the shift that it invited us to make, a shift from what he called an earn it mentality to really like this grace mentality. And he talked about how the, the, the Bible will say that there is nothing that we can do to actually earn a relationship with God. That, that it is only by God's radical grace that we are invited into a relationship with him, all right? And so in case you missed that last week, I, I'd highly encourage you to go back and check that out, whether, whether on our, our podcast or website. It was an awesome message. And actually kind of tease us up for the parable that we're gonna look at today. Because I think this idea right here, uh, I think it actually invites us to maybe ask a follow-up question, one that Pastor Kevin actually hinted at at the end of his message. And, and here's the question. If, if it's all about grace, if our relationship with God is only by grace, does that mean that we have to do anything? Right, like, like if we can't earn anything, why would we do anything? Is God's grace, is it just a license to now kind of live however we want? Right? Is, it, is it just a freedom that we kind of receive and then get to enjoy in our life? And I actually think this is a very natural question when, when we kind of encounter the radical nature of God's grace. Uh, but the problem is, is if we follow this line of thinking, I think it actually leads us to an improper conclusion about what it means to follow Jesus. Because it leads to this idea that what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that you've had a moment that, then, that what a Christian is, is it just simply means that you've had a moment where you've prayed a prayer or, or you've stood on your feet or, or you've made a decision for Jesus. And then after that, you're done, right? You're, you're good. God's grace kind of just, it, it just takes care of the rest. And, and now you, there's nothing else for you to, more for you to do. And then that's kind of it. But today we're gonna look at a new parable. It's gonna help us uh, better understand what it looks like to respond to God's grace in our lives. All right, so I wanna invite you guys to flip to Matthew 25, verses, uh, verses 14 through 30. It's gonna be on page 806 in the Bibles under your seats. And so you can find your way there in one of your Bibles. Uh, and if you don't have uh, a Bible of your own, we would love for you to take one of ours. We think God's word is amazing, and so we would love for you to have that. Um, but yeah, we're gonna, you can go ahead and make your way there. What we're gonna do is we're just gonna read through this parable and, and then kind of let it mess with us, right? Like it's designed to do. And then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about what it teaches us to respond to God's word. All right, so I'm gonna actually read here out of this Bible I got up here and then we'll be putting up some verses on the screen after. But uh, as we're reading, you guys can be looking at your own Bibles. So here it is, Matthew 25, verse 14 through 30. And so it says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. 
To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. And the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the, masters, uh, uh, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have, uh, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, so there's our parable for today. Uh, Maybe for some of you guys, you maybe have heard this parable before. might be a familiar one. It's about how three servants respond very differently to uh, wealth that the master entrusted to them. And for those of you guys who may be familiar with this parable, uh, often the applic- one of the big applications of this parable is how we invest our money or how we manage our resources. And while I think that is certainly a helpful application of how we would think about living out the truth of this parable, I actually think that Jesus has something much, much broader in mind here than just that. Because if you guys notice, the way the parable began was Jesus said, again, it will be like and the question is, what's it, right? What is, what is Jesus talking about here? Uh, well, this actually, Matthew 25 comes in a string of parables. There's, there's three parables, each kind of about the same thing. And in that first parable, this is how Jesus begins it. He says, the kingdom of heaven will be like. And so it is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is doing here is he's actually responding to some questions about what will it look like when the kingdom of heaven comes on earth in its fullest sense. And so part of what he's doing is he's explaining what will it look like when we stand before God on that day, when when his kingdom comes fully. And I think that's really important because it tells us that this parable isn't just about how we invest our money, but I think more comprehensively, it's about how do we invest our lives, right? How do do we live uh, and respond with our entire lives in response to the coming of God's kingdom, And I think this parable uh, invites us to shift the way we respond in three ways. And so I think it invites us to shift from responding as owners to responding as stewards, to to shift from responding aimlessly to actively, and to shift from responding with fear 
to responding with faith. All right, and so I think the first thing we'll see is this shift from being owners to being stewards. I think we see this just in the first few verses. And so the parable says, Jesus tells us that there was this master, wealthy master who goes out on a journey. But before he goes, he actually entrusts some of his wealth to three servants. And in the NIV, it says that he gives them bags of gold. Uh, and so in, the, uh, in other translations, and actually in, in the original language, that word there, it's actually the word talent. But it's not talent how we would think of it, as like skills and ability. Uh, talent was actually a weight of money. And so archaeologists, they've actually even dug up these talent stones that would have weighed about 75 pounds. And these things were used to weigh denarii or, or a day wage. And so one talent stone was about 6,000 denarii or about 20 years worth of wage. And so this was, this was a, a decent amount of money. Actually, to put this into perspective, uh, the average annual income in America is $54,132, meaning that if, we, if someone were to give you a talent today, it would be about $1,082,640, right? So not, not a small chunk of change. These guys, they, they receive loans of $5 million, $2 million, and $1 million. And, and in this time, this was actually a common practice of wealthy landowners uh, to entrust their servants uh, a, a, a money to, to seek a return on. That there would have been this expectation that these guys would have went out and, and found a way to earn a return for their master. But everything that they needed to complete that task, it, it was given to them by the master, right? There would have been this unspoken assumption that these guys were stewards of this wealth and, and not owners of it, right? That they were, to, they were to manage the wealth according to the desire of their master, uh, not consume it because it ultimately, it didn't belong to them, but it belonged to their master, right? And so, so what then does that tell us? What does that have to do with us? Well, in a similar way, the Bible's gonna say that everything that we have has been given to us by God. The Bible's gonna talk about this a lot, and, and one of the places it says this is Psalm 24. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That, that everything meaning our time, our, our energy, our, our money, our resources, our talents and abilities as we would think of them. All of those things come from God and they belong to God. They're, they're the Lord's, right? First Corinthians 4, it says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That when we hear the message of God, when we hear the good news about Jesus, the gospel, we actually become stewards of that message. God invites us to manage that message. First Corinthians 6, it says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. That even our physical bodies, so they don't even belong to, they belong to God. That's what the Bible is going to tell us. And I think this is so important because it's so often that we kind of get this in reverse, right? It's so easy for, uh, for us to think of ourselves as owners of, of everything that we have, right? And so we'll think about my time and, and my resources and, and my opportunities, my energy, right? We'll think about my life that I've earned through, through my hard work and my sacrifice. And so when it comes to the, the idea of our purpose or, or our desires or our dreams, the primary question we ask is, what do I want to do with my life, right? 
But, but if we are stewards and not owners, that, that would lead us to a different question. The, the real question we should ask is, what does my creator want for my life? Right? Who, what is the one who owns all that has been given to me? What, what does he want for my life? And I think if we were to make this shift, it, w- it would lead us to ask an entirely different set of questions than we normally do. Because I think instead of asking, hey, what, what should I do with my time? I think a steward asks, God, w- what do you want me to do with the time you've given me? Right? And instead of asking, how much of my money should I give to God? We, we'd ask, hey, God, God, how much of your money do you want me to keep? And, and I'll do with the rest whatever you want. Instead of asking, hey, hey how, how can I leverage my life to accomplish my goals, to, to get ahead in the ways that I want to get ahead? We, we would ask God, how do you want me to leverage my life, everything that I have, to participate in your kingdom, to, to engage in what you are doing and hope to accomplish in this world? Right? And so the first question this parable invites us to ask is, is do we think this way? Or, or do we need to shift our paradigm, right? to shift from owners to being stewards? But I think the second way this parable invites us to shift our response is from responding aimlessly to now responding actively. And I think we see this in the next few verses as these uh, servants begin to manage the wealth that God has given them. And so the Bible says that the first servant who received five bags, he went at once and put his money to work. Right, so he begins to trade, he begins to invest, he begins to find a way to kind of earn a return on this, and he ends up doubling his money. He gains five bags more. In a similar way, the guy who received two bags, he does a similar thing. Right away, he begins to work his money and he doubles it as well. And so both of these guys, they, exert, they actively exert time and energy, diligence, skill, and accomplishing what their master desired. Right? But the third guy, he has a very different plan of going about this. So after he receives his one bag of gold, uh, the parable says that he went off, dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money, right? So he actually buries his talent, his bag of gold in the ground. And so this seems probably pretty odd to us, right? But actually this would have been a common way in this day to make sure that your money is safe and protected. Even today, uh, occasionally they will find buried reserves of money that was, that was from a long time ago. And so if you uh, buried your money carefully, it would ensure that nobody would be able to find it, right? That, that it be kept safe. But of course, this would also ensure that it wouldn't grow, that, you, that there was no opportunity to actually gain a return on that money. And so from, from the start, this, this third servant's plan ensured that he would not receive a return on his master's investment. Well, the Bible says that after a, a long time, the master returns, and, and he begins to settle accounts with these workers. And so one by one, these guys kind of approach the master and they, and they show him how, how they've done, and he responds to that. And I don't know if you guys caught this, but it's really interesting that even though the first two servants, the, 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 even though they earned different amounts, the one earned five, the other earned two, they received the exact same reward and praise from the master. The, the exact same thing. I, it, you see this in, in verses 21 and 23. The master replies to each of them, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. That twice the master praises these guys for their faithfulness, right? And I think that's really significant significant because it points us to what the master 
values. Because he didn't say, well done, good and fruitful servants. He didn't say, well done, good and profitable servants. He said, well done, good and faithful servants. You, you have been faithful. And so what brought this master joy, what was pleasing to him, was his servant's faith, right? It wasn't the return that he got. The return was just evidence that these guys have actively uh, followed him in faith. And that's why he responds very differently to the third servant, right? After the third servant digs his money up out of the ground and brings it to the master, uh, this is what the master says to him. He says, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. I don't know about you guys. When I first read this, I'm like, that, it was a little shocking, right? Like, it seems a little harsh to call this guy wicked and lazy. I mean, lazy, I think we can kind of get, right? He clearly didn't work as hard as the other guys. Probably doesn't take much effort to dig a hole and throw your money in it and bury that, right? Uh, not, not, much, not as much work as investing it like those other guys did. But wicked, right? How, how is this guy wicked? How, how is safely returning 100% of what the master, how is that evil, right? How is keeping somebody's money safe wicked? Well, actually, I really love the way that pastor and author J.D. Greer uh, kind of talks about this parable. I think he does a really good job of capturing the shock value of it in a book that he wrote called Gaining by Losing. I just want to read you uh, this quote from this book. It's a, it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I think he does, I think he makes a really good point. So he says, two things about that parable grip me. First, Jesus commended the first two servants for taking a risk with his money. Investing it means they could have lost it. That's the nature of investing. No guarantees. Yet Jesus doesn't say, what were you thinking? You could have lost all my money. Instead, he commended them. The second thing that stands out is even more startling. He called the one who did not take the risk wicked. Wicked, what had he done? There seems to be no stealing, immorality, or even reckless irresponsibility involved. He didn't blow the master's money on partying, prostitutes, gambling, or first-class accommodations in the Caribbean. In fact, he had not spent a single penny on himself. He returned 100% of what he had been given to the master. And for that, Jesus called him wicked. Most of us tend to think about wickedness only in terms of bad things that we do. But according to this parable, wicked can apply as much to what we don't do as to what we do. Failure to risk our lives to the fullest potential for the kingdom of God is as wicked as the most egregious violations of the laws of God. Let that sink in for a minute. The question is not whether you have done bad things. The question is whether you have done the right things with the good things God has given you. I think J.D. Greer, I think he makes a really good point here. That for when we think about what it means to be a person of faith or what it means to be a good person, we typically define that in terms of things that we don't do, right? So like if you don't drink and do drugs, if you don't have sex before marriage, if you don't miss church, if you don't root for Michigan, right? You're, do, you're doing pretty good, right? You're, you're a good person, right? Even, even, if, even if much of your life, the aim of your life has nothing to do with what concerns God or what he cares about, as long as you're not like actively pursuing a life of sin, you're doing good, right? But I think this parable actually challenges that view. I think it invites us to think of this differently. I think it tells us that to respond to God's grace with anything other than a life of actively pursuing God's will is wicked. 
You know, a question we'll ask sometimes is, how do I know that my life is pleasing to God, right? How do I know that I'm living a life that is honoring to God? And the Bible's answer again and again is it's by faith. It's it's our faith that pleases God. But according to the Bible, faith isn't just believing the right things, and it's not just avoiding the wrong things. It's actually pursuing the good things that God wants for us. That faith will result in action. That the kind of faith that pleases God is one that leads to an active life rather than an aimless life. And if that's the case, does that mean that our relationship with God then is no longer about grace? If God invites us to be faithful, does that mean it's no longer by grace? Well, it depends how we think about what God's grace is. Because for many of us, when we think about God's grace, like we said, we think of it primarily and only as this freedom to enjoy. That grace means we're forgiven, right? That grace means that there is nothing we can do to earn a relationship with God. And all that is true. All those things are absolutely true. But this parable tells us that that's not all that God's grace is. That God's grace is also a responsibility to steward, that God doesn't just forgive us. He, he actually calls us to be faithful. That, that God's grace calls us to make the, our master's aim our aim. That it frees us and empowers us to go and pursue the life that God wants for us. Right? And I think that helps us understand why this master responded so differently to the third servant. It, like I said, it's easy to see his view as, as harsh or, or, or cruel or just like overly critical? Like why, why, did he, why did he respond in the way that he did? But, but put yourself in the master's shoes for a second. Imagine you hire a retirement advisor and you, and you, you say, I'm gonna give you my whole life savings, right? And, and by the time I retire, I wanna see a return on that investment. And imagine you get to your retirement day and you go and meet with this guy and he tells you, hey, uh, I actually didn't invest all, any of it. I, not a single penny, but good news, here it is. You didn't, you didn't lose any of it. Are you gonna say like, thanks man, that, that was, you did a really good job. Like, great. are you gonna be excited about that? No, no, right, you know what you're gonna say? You're gonna say, hey, you wicked lazy servant, right? Like, what? Like, like that, that's, that's so lazy of you. And not only that, you, you neglected the very thing that I hired you to do. You didn't even try to do it. Well, I think something similar is going on in this passage. Because notice, the the, the master didn't condemn the third servant because he tried and he failed. I think we all wish we could have seen what would happen if that guy went out and took his one bag of gold and invested it and and took the risk like the other guys and failed and lost it. I, I think we all wish we could see how the master would respond in that instance. But that's not the way that Jesus tells the parable. This guy didn't go out and try and fail. He just didn't do anything. He just just didn't do a single thing. Actually, one historian pointed out that when he says, hey, see here is what belongs to you, when he he returns his money, that's basically a way of saying like, hey, I'm not responsible for this. I'm done with this. You take this. I want nothing to do with this. And so the picture we get is of a third servant who, who wanted nothing to do with the master and nothing to do with his work in the world. And so the master takes away
us. If the way we conceive of our faith is that it's just about meeting the minimum requirements that we think God puts on us so we can get him off our back and go pursue the thing that we really wanna pursue, I think we maybe have misunderstood God's grace. And I'd be lying to you if I told you that's a good spot to be in. I think that's a scary spot because I don't don't think this parable leaves us with any other conclusion. But here's the thing. I I don't think this parable is ultimately meant to scare us. I don't don't think that's the point point of it. I think the final paradigm shift that it invites us to make is to responding from fear to instead responding with faith. I think this parable is actually meant to give us confidence in faith and pursuing what the master wants for us. Because think about this. Why, why is it that these three servants responded differently? What was it that led to the first two going out and, and actively investing what the master gave them and the third one to do nothing? What, what was it that was motivating those things? Well, the third servant actually tells us. He tells us exactly what he was thinking. He says this. He says, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid your gold in the ground. He tells us exactly what was going on in his mind. That he knew the master was a hard man, so he was afraid. Fear was motivating his response. And so what does it mean that he he thought the master was a hard man? Well, it means that when this guy thought about the master, he pictured somebody who was harsh and exacting. Somebody who puts crushing expectations on those who works for, work for them. Somebody who was ruthless in their, in their business practices and just cared about the bottom line. And under the weight of those expectations, he was paralyzed with fear, right? Which I, I think we can understand that. Like, I don't know about you guys. I don't know if any of you have ever worked under the watchful eye of a harsh supervisor and know how, how paralyzing that can be. In fact, here's my confession. I think I see this dynamic at work every time I play pickleball with my wife, Emily. And so you know how, you know how when it comes to like games, there's really only two kinds of people. There, there's those who want to play the game to kind of enjoy people. Like the, the game's just kind of an excuse to, you know, for relationships and for fun and stuff. They like care about people. And you know how there's the other kind who just want to destroy people and like win at any cost. And you guys know how sometimes those two people marry each other? Well... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what happened with Emily and I. And so we've been, we've been getting into pickleball lately. We'll play on each other's team. And it turns out when it comes to pickleball, I'm, I'm a hard man, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm harsh sometimes. And so I've had to learn how to like tone down my competitiveness because unfortunately every time I play with Emily, sometimes she lives with, the, with like the fear of, of letting me down or of disappointing me. And it's not good, Right? Like, Jesus is working on my heart, and he's working on Emily's pickleball game. So if you guys could pray for us, that would be, that would be awesome, right? <laughs> but but I, I think if, if you can get your mind wrapped around, I think something similar is going on in this passage at a much more uh, serious level, right? This third servant, he was in fear. And what's really interesting is the word that the master describes him with, this idea of being lazy. In the, in the original Greek language, it includes this idea of, of shrinking back from something. It includes this idea of holding back or hesitating or being reluctant to move forward. And what's so interesting about that is, it, is isn't that exactly what happens when you live under the, the, the fear and the weight of crushing expectations? I think this is where Jesus' parable is so incredibly insightful 
Because I think really the, the, the question he's forcing us to ask is this. How do you view God? How do you view God? Do you view God as a hard man? That for some of us, when we think about who God is, the picture that comes to mind is somebody who is just waiting for us to screw up. Somebody who is meticulously inspecting our life, just waiting for us to fail. Someone we have no shot of doing anything right by or actually pleasing. But for some of us, when we think about how God thinks about us, we think about somebody who's perpetually disappointed, that we think he would say to us, man, you could have so much potential if you could just get your act together, if you could just figure your life out. That we compare ourselves to other people and think, man, God must be so proud of them and he must be so frustrated with me. And if we have that picture in our mind of God, if that's in our thinking, what do we do? We bury our talent. We don't even try to please him, right? Because what's the point? We think, man, I am too broken I am too jacked up. I, I, have, I have too much baggage. My story, there's, there's too much damage done. And I, I'm far too useless for God to ever use me. Man, I, I have to figure out so much in my own life before I could actually know God and be used by him. And so, so we want nothing to do with him. Or, or we just try to meet the minimum requirement we think he puts on us so he'll leave us alone and so we can get him off our backs. I think for some of us, just like the third servant, we're afraid because we think the master's a hard man. But the critical question then is, is that true? Is that what this parable is telling us? Or is it telling us something different? Right? Because honestly, whenever I've read this parable, that's something I've actually struggled with a bit. Because at first glance, it doesn't seem like the master actually corrects the view of the third servant. In fact, his response seems like he kind of affirms his view. But I actually don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what's going on here. Actually, if you read a, a parallel account of this parable that's told in the Gospel of Luke, I think we're clued in a little bit more to what's going on with this third servant. When the master responds to the third servant in this parable in Luke, he says to him, I will judge you by your own words. That in other words, th- th- this idea of being a hard man, that's not a true description of the master. It's just the basis he judges this third servant on. I think what we get is a picture of a third servant who actually doesn't know the master at all. That he completely misses his heart and completely misunderstands him. Because think about it, what else in this parable supports the idea that the master is a hard and harsh man? I think that idea contradicts the master's character in this parable. Because think about it, in this parable, the master generously provides all the resources for his servants to succeed. This master, he knows his servants. He has an intimate knowledge of them. So so he can give them and empower them with what they need to flourish. He, He rewards the first two servants the same way, based on their faith, like we said, and not on their profit. And then he invites these guys in. He invites them in to share in his joy. And he actually lets them keep what they earn and entrust them with even more work and responsibility. Nothing else in this parable gives us the impression that the master is a hard man. But I think more importantly, that view contradicts 
the character of the one who's telling this parable. Because I think everybody listening would have understood that the master in this parable was Jesus. That Jesus was the one who has empowered us and who's going away and is coming back someday. And man, do you know how Jesus describes his heart towards those who are weighed down by heavy burdens and expectations? This is what Jesus says in the same gospel a few chapters earlier. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man, when Jesus thinks about those who are weary, who are burdened, and who are beat down in life, and who are fearful, his heart is gentle and humble. That, That he doesn't want to put his heavy expectations on, he invites us to follow him and bear our burdens with us. That that's Jesus's heart. And so a harsh view of the master contradicts the very heart of Jesus. But man, I think most importantly, a harsh view of the master contradicts what, what Jesus would do two chapters later. Because just after telling this parable, Jesus would go to the cross. He would go to be crucified on the cross. And what was the cross about? And the cross is where Jesus would fulfill the demands that we would never be able to fulfill. The cross is where Jesus would pay our debts we would never be able to pay. And the cross is where Jesus would take our penalty for our sin and rebellion against God so that we could go free. And the cross reveals that God isn't a hard man reaping what he has not sown. God God is gracious. He is full of grace so that we could reap what Jesus has sown for us. Because Jesus died for us and then he rose again, conquering sin and death and inviting us, empowering us to follow him into the new life that he extends to us. And so I think when we know the master, when we know his heart, when we know what he's done for us, and the only response is active faith. The only response is to lay our lives before him and say, it's all yours. Take it. I'm living for you now. That's the only response. It's not, it's not paralyzing fear, but it's active faith. Because I think that's what grace is. And it frees us. and It liberates us to truly serve the true master who died for us. And it invites us to risk our lives for him, to live boldly for his kingdom, and to trust him with our entire lives. I think that's what this parable is about. I think the final paradigm shift it invites us into is how we view the master, how we view God, that we would respond to a gracious God rather than a harsh one. So as I invite the band up, and I just want to think about then, how do we personally respond to this parable, right? How do we do that? Well, I think that we see that the crucial factor in how each of these servants responded uh, is how they view the master. It is what comes to their minds as they think about the master. And so I think that tells us that we need to get to know the master. We need to get to know his heart. So for those of us who follow Jesus, here's the question I want to leave you guys with that we can consider together. It's what has God entrusted you with and what are you doing with it? And I think to or, in order to answer this question, it means we need to know two things. 
We need to know what God's given us, right? What, what talents, what, what resources, what, what unique influence and opportunities has he entrusted to us? And I think the second thing we need to know is we need to know the master's heart. We need to know what matters to God. We need to know what his will, and his, we need to know what brings him joy, what he wants for our church, and what he wants for our local community. I, th- I think we need to ask the question, do, do we share God's heart for the lost, for those who don't know him? Do, do we share God's compassion for the hurting and vulnerable in our world? Do we share God's burden to see the gospel go to the next generation here at our campus and in our community? Do we see those things? Because to respond with active faith is not just about believing the right things or, or avoiding the wrong things. It's about pursuing the things that matter to Jesus. It's about pursuing God's heart for this world. And so what has God entrusted you with? And what are you doing with it, right? And then for those of us who are investigating Jesus, I think this, in parable, I think this parable invites you to ask a different question. And it's this, do you know the master's heart for you? Do you know... Jesus' heart for you. Is there a chance that maybe like this third servant, you have an incorrect view of God? Is there a chance that maybe you need to shift your paradigm? And if you're investigating Jesus, I want you to begin your investigation right here. To to get to know Jesus and his heart for you. And man, one of the best ways to do that is through his word. That you can get to know God's heart through his word. And so if you don't know where to begin, I want to invite you to read the Gospel of John. It's just an account of Jesus' life, his teachings, and what he's done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And I want to invite you to maybe read that with somebody, maybe the person that brought you here today, or let us know. We would love to find somebody who'd want to read that with you. But, but you can do that. You can get to know God's heart for you. And I want to invite you to continue to come back as we learn about these parables and as you understand more deeply the invitation that Jesus is extending to you. All right, let's pray. Lord, um, God, thank you so much, uh, Jesus, for your grace. God, thank you um, that you freely extend that to us, Lord, that we don't deserve it. God, there was nothing we could do to earn it. But God, because of your character and because of your heart, because of who you are, God, that you are gracious and compassionate, God, you pursued us. And Lord, thank you that in, in the only response to that is offering our entire lives to you. Because God, you're worth that. You're worthy of everything, Lord. But Jesus, we want to ask that you would help us uh, believe that. God, that you would help us live that way. Lord, that you would wake us up to that reality so we could pursue you faithfully. And God, we could pursue what you want uh, for us, for this world, God, for our community, faithfully. God, so we could steward the beautiful message of the gospel, Lord, this good news about you, that we could share that with the lost and with the hurting and with the next generation. Jesus, lead us to those things. And God, for those that are here who who are investigating you, who are figuring you out, God, I pray they would see your heart. God, I pray they would see your heart through your life, death, and resurrection. God, that you have made a way for them to know you and to come into a relationship with you. And God, I pray that they would pursue you just as you have pursued them. God, that they would open themselves up 
to knowing you and following you. Jesus, we just love you, and we pray all this in your name. Amen.